the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. TBN Pinellas Park, W262CP Bayonet Point. Brought to you by Moss Nissan. Moss Nissan. Portions of this hour have been pre recorded for broadcast at this time. Odyssey. The following program was pre recorded for broadcast at this time. Up next is Verse by Verse, sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries. Now the government officials are fighting for Israel. And what the author is telling us is that uh, Mordecai now had the favor of the king. And the Jewish people were in, were in good standing with the king. And they knew that they needed to side with the Jews. You don't go against the, the people that the king is siding with. You know, they knew where their bread was buttered. And so they were fighting for the Jews. And because of that, it was an incredible victory for the Jewish people. Because deprived of government support, the Persians against Israel were defeated. And this is God's judgment upon those who curse Israel. Remember he said to Abraham, I will curse them that curse you. And that's God's word. We cannot always detect pure and exemplary motives in the hearts of the people God uses. But we know that God's design in using them is good and right. Sometimes God utilizes the common vices of men, such as greed for money and power, to influence people and accomplish his plans. Such was the case when he turned the hearts of the rulers of Persia to help the Jews in the days of Esther and Mordecai. We welcome you back to another edition of Verse by Verse. Today we begin the eighth and final message by Pastor Steve in this series on the book of Esther. Throughout the series, we have been reminded time and again that our God exercises wise, perfect control over the affairs of men and nations. Today, we'll be looking at how God provided his people with the final deliverance from the evil plot of Haman. Here's Pastor Steve to tell us how it all played out. Tonight, we're going to conclude our study of the book of Esther, so I think it'd be good for you to turn there to Esther chapter 9. We have taken a number of weeks now to carefully study this much-neglected portion of Scripture. For some of us, it may have been the first time that we have ever read through the book of Esther. But I don't know if you realize this, if you were Jewish and part of the synagogue, regularly attended a synagogue, that is, that wouldn't be the case. You would read through the book of Esther every year. Every year. Because Jewish people who attend synagogues read Esther through every year to celebrate the Feast of Purim. Every year, uh, the Feast of Purim is celebrated in March, and the Jewish people would read through this book. Now, Purim isn't a very well-known feast. In fact, it is not one of the seven feasts mentioned in Leviticus 23, which commands the Jewish people to keep these feasts, the Feast of Jehovah. It's not one of those. But Purim is a very important feast, very, very important to the children of Israel. In fact, according to some rabbis, and I quote, this is what they feel, when Messiah comes, all the feasts 
will become redundant, but Purim shall never cease. Now, the Bible doesn't say that, but some rabbis say that. Just to indicate that in the minds of the Jewish rabbis, Purim is a very, very important and very wonderful feast. It is the Feast of Lots. Purim. Why is Purim so special to the Jewish people? Because they understand that the Feast of Purim expresses their belief in the invisible working of an invisible God, one who works behind the scenes of human events. Every year they remind themselves by celebrating Purim that the psalmist was right when he said, he that keepeth Israel neither sleeps nor slumbers. And even without having a personal relationship with the Lord through Christ, the Jewish people are nonetheless deeply conscious of God's watch care over them. At least many of them are. Now, everything we've studied so far in Esther has pointed us to chapters 9 and 10. This is really the climax of this book. Because out of this, these two chapters come the origin and the initiating of the Feast of Purim, which was to live on and be a reminder that God does keep Israel. The theme of the, of the book of Esther is what? God's preservation through providence. And everything that has happened in the book so far points to the fact that God, through providence, watches over his people by providentially controlling the everyday affairs of life. God has been moving towards preserving his people, Israel. Now, we said that providence is different than God supernaturally intervening into the course of, of history. It's using those mundane, everyday things that we sometimes think God couldn't possibly be a part of, and yet God is. He uses that to bring about his great plan. That is providence. God providing for man's needs. From the promotion of Esther to the very plot of Haman, God has worked behind the scenes to bring about the preservation of Israel and the fulfillment of his promise to protect Israel from being totally annihilated. And that's why we said God's name is not mentioned in this book, but he certainly is working in the book. The invisible God working behind the scenes. You can see him on every page and every verse, even if he's not acknowledged and brought out in name in the book. Now tonight, uh, we're going to examine the actual physical deliverance of Israel and how Purim came into being. Up to this point, we've just been pointed in that direction. Tonight, we're going to see how God actually preserved Israel. Now the scene is this. A decree has gone out 12 months Prior to chapter 9, the decree that on a certain day, all the enemies of the Jewish people in the kingdom now uh, had the right and the legality to kill all the Jewish people. And this was in all the empire. This would mean that the Jews who were in Jerusalem, who were rebuilding the things of God, the temple, the city, all that would be wiped out. All the Jews would die. But in the meantime, the author of that decree, which was issued 12 months previous, the author has died, Haman. Haman has been exposed as an enemy of Queen Esther and an enemy of the Jewish people, and he was executed, killed. Who's been promoted? Mordecai the Jew. The enemy of the Jew is gone. Mordecai the Jew has been elevated to the position of prime minister in Persia. And in this new position, which has obviously been controlled by God's providence, that promotion, 
Mordecai has been given the authority to issue a new decree, a new decree, which he does. And in this decree, he grants the Jews the right to assemble and to defend themselves. Apparently, before this, they didn't have the right to defend themselves. And now they do. They could assemble. They could defend themselves when that fateful day of attack comes. Now, as chapter 9 opens, that day has arrived. That's the context. Now, let's look at it. Verse 1. Now, in the twelfth month, that is the month Adar, on the thirteenth day when the king's command and the edict were about to be executed, on the day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, it was turned to the contrary so that the Jews themselves gained the mastery over those who hated them. Now, why doesn't the author just come right out and say that God gave them the victory? He doesn't. He doesn't say that because the writer has deliberately, this is not by accident, deliberately left out God's name throughout the whole book. No mention of God's name, even though God has been providentially controlling the course of all the events. And I want to remind you why that's the case. This has been by design. God promised the Jewish people through Abraham that he would protect them. I will bless them that bless you. I will curse them that curse you. God promised them, but he also promised them that if they disobeyed and if they would not accept his laws and his theocracy, that is the the program that God had for Israel, which centered around the sacrificial system and Jerusalem and the priesthood and all of that that centered in the land, if they were to discard that while God would protect them because of his promise to Abraham, He would not identify with them. He would preserve them. He would protect them. He would watch over them. He would keep them. But he would not allow his name to be identified with such a disobedient, rebellious people. A people who rejected the theocracy of Israel. God's program for the Jewish people. And that's why God's name is not mentioned in this entire book. God will. They didn't identify with him. And his program, he would not give his name to identify with them. As I told you many times, these people should have been back in the land. These people should have had the same kind of spirit that Daniel had when he prayed three times to Jerusalem. These people should have said, my heart longs to be back in Jerusalem. My heart longs to be rebuilding the temple. My heart longs to be offering sacrifice. But they didn't. I believe that Mordecai... And Esther were born in Persia. They had grown up in Persia. Those are Persian names. And that these people had just become accustomed to the uh, life of ease and comfort. And they didn't want to go back to Jerusalem where it was difficult and where the enemies were, were there and where the, uh, where the people were, were constantly having problems. No, they wanted to stay put. But God said that in spite of the fact that they were a disobedient people, he would preserve them. He would protect them. Let's look at some passages just to refresh our our thinking on that. Leviticus chapter 26 deals with that. Leviticus, right in the law, God promises, promises this to them. In verse 44, Leviticus 26, he says, Yet in spite of this, When they are in the land of their enemies, I will not reject them, nor will I so abhor them as to destroy them, breaking my covenant with them, for I am the Lord their God. God says, I'll protect them. 
I'll never turn my backs upon them. They may turn their back in one sense upon me, but I will not upon them. And how about that classic passage in Jeremiah chapter 31? Jeremiah 31 tells us God's watch care over Israel. Verses 35 and 36 says this, Thus says the Lord who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that it weigh, so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of peace from being a nation before me forever. In other words, if, if, the, if there's no sun tomorrow or any day from this point and no moon and no stars, then there'll be no Israel. But we know that's not the case. The sun is there even if we can't see it. The moon is there. The stars are there. God is still preserving Israel. God has promised them that in spite of their disobedience, and I really believe that Esther and, and Mordecai were unregenerate, disobedient Jews, courageous but unbelieving Jews. There's no evidence in this book that they were godly people raised in the lands and had no heart for the things of God. They never talk about God. They never talk about Jerusalem. They never talk about Israel, the land. They never talk about the sacrificial system. They never talk about the temple. And so God doesn't identify with them. Isn't there a similar situation in Israel today? Is God still preserving the Jewish nation? Well, we looked at that a little bit last week, and we saw that as a nation, God made it happen. God brought about the rebirth of the nation of Israel in the late 1940s. And we quoted from Marv Rosenthal's book, Not Without Design, very exciting story. By all human reason and logic, they should not exist today. But I want you to know God didn't stop there. God didn't stop there. He not only established Israel, the modern state of Israel, but he is preserving the nation of Israel. In 1967, Syria, and Jordan, and Egypt were about to attack Israel. All the intelligence sources of Israel, Israel, by the way, has probably the greatest uh, sources of, of um, intelligence, military intelligence, uh, in the world, even superior to the United States. And I think we, those in government, would, would admit that. And so they learned that, that Syria and Jordan and Egypt were about to attack Israel. And when they learned this, Israel decided as a military move to launch a preemptive strike, and so they struck first. Three nations to one, totally outnumbered, was Israel. And yet, I want you to know, in six days, it was all over. It's called the Six-Day War. One observer commenting on this put it this way. He said, by a feat of arms unparalleled in modern times, the Israelis surrounded by enemies superior in quantity and quality of equipment and overwhelmingly superior in numbers had fought a war on three fronts and not only survived, but won a resounding victory. You just look at the history of Israel and you would have to conclude that it is a miracle. The only reason that Israel is preserved is because God preserves Israel. Now, that doesn't say that we support Israel and all of her moves. That doesn't say that, that every military move that Israel uh, makes that we say that's wonderful. No, we're realistic. But we say that Israel has the right to exist. And we say that in spite of some of the things that she does, which she is like any other unregenerate nation, she does things that are that are ethically and morally wrong, just like any nation. But... We say she has the right to exist and that God has 
preserved her. In his own providence and own sovereignty, God has preserved Israel. I was a young Jewish teenager at that time in 1967, living in New York, being rather concerned about what was happening. And if you are in the Jewish community uh, and those things happen, there is a tremendous tension and fear because if Israel goes down, all the Jews around the world go down with her. And so I was in New York at the time, and I remembered a great sense of relief when I picked up the newspaper and it said something to the effect of the war is over. Great sense of, of relief and a great sense of pride in Israel. But I'll tell you, it, it's only as a believer that I look back and I see that he that keepeth Israel was not sleeping, was not slumbering. God was the one who was giving her victory. And in verse 1 of Esther 9, it says that the Jews themselves gained the mastery over those who hated him. And the writer deliberately says that. He is leaving God's name out. He knows, and we know, that the Jews gained the mastery because God gave them the victory. And he's still doing that. God is the same in his attitude toward Israel today as he was back then. Now that's the point of the whole book of Esther. God has protected Israel so that the Jewish people gained the mastery over those who they defeated, who hated them. Now how did this happen? How did it happen? Well, let's look at verses 2, or verse 2. The Jews assembled in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand before them, for the dread of them had fallen on all the people. That is, the Gentiles, the Persians, were afraid of them. The dread of the Jews had fallen upon the Persians. Now, who put it in their hearts to fear Israel like that? God did. Why would they be so afraid? God did. Let's read on. Even the princes of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and those who were doing the king's business assisted the Jews because the dread of Mordecai had fallen on them. Verse 4. Indeed, Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces, for the man Mordecai became greater and greater. Thus the Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying but, and they did what they pleased to those who hated them. What this is saying is even the government officials of the, even the government officials helped the Jews defeat their enemies. And you say, why would they do that? Well, God once again in his providence. Isn't this a change of pace? I mean, uh, Haman had all the government officials ready to swoop down on Israel. Now the government officials are fighting for Israel. Why? These men were politicians. And they knew where their bread was buttered. And what the author is telling us is that uh, Mordecai now had the favor of the king. And the Jewish people were in, were in good standing with the king. And they knew that they needed to side with the Jews. You don't go against the, the people that the king is siding with. No, they knew where their bread was buttered. And so they were fighting for the Jews. And because of that, it was an incredible victory for the Jewish people. Because deprived of government support, the Persians against Israel were defeated. And this is God's judgment upon those who curse Israel. Remember he said to Abraham, I will curse them that curse you. Now that's God's word. Let's look at verses 6 and following. And in Susa, the capital, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. And I don't know if I'm going to get these names right, but I'm going to try. 
Amparsadatha, Dalphon, Aspatha, Paratha, Adalia, Aradatha, Parmashta, Ariaske, Arade, and Vazatha, the ten sons of Haman. You think Haman was strange? Look what he named his kids. <laughs> Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Jews' enemy, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. Imagine calling those kids for lunch. Rough thing. Now, what this is saying is that 500 people were killed in the capital city called Susa, or some, some of your versions say Shushan. It's the same thing, Susa or Shushan. And the 10 sons of, of Haman were killed. Now, why were they killed? You say, what well, is that necessary? Well, in ancient times, it really was. As long as they were alive, they posed a serious threat to Israel, to Queen Esther, to Mordecai. I mean, these people, these sons would want to get back for killing, having their, their father killed. But I want you to notice something very interesting. It says in verse 10, right at the end, and it may seem insignificant to you, but I think it's important, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. Now, rightfully so, the Jews could have laid their hands on the plunder. That was part of the decree. They could have taken everything that belonged to the Gentiles, but they did not. And why is the author saying that? And by the way, he repeats that again in verses 15 and 16. Because the, the writer wants to impress upon us that the Jews simply were out to defend themselves. It was not vengeance. There was not vengeance here. They were out to defend themselves. They were not out for blood. They simply wanted to defend themselves. But I want you to know the critics of Esther, uh, Queen Esther, say that she was a vengeful person, a person seeking blood. Why? Well, let's look at verses 11 through 15. You'll see why the critics say this, and then we'll try to answer them. On that day, the number of those who were killed in Susa, the capital, was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and the 10 sons of Haman in Susa, the capital. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now, what is your petition? It shall be, uh, it, it shall even be granted you. And what is your further request? It shall be also done. Then, said Esther, if it pleases the king, let tomorrow also be granted to the Jews who are in Susa, edict of today, and let Haman's ten sons be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded that it should be done so, and an edict was issued in Susa, and Haman's sons were hanged. Verse 15 says, And the Jews who were in Susa assembled also on the 14th day of the month, Adar, and killed 300 men in Susa, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. Now, why would Esther make such a request like this? Haman's sons were already dead, and yet she said, put a pole through them, hang them. Probably does not mean hanging them by their neck, but put them on a pole, stick it even, even a stake through them, and hang them so everyone could see. 500 enemies already have been killed. Why more? Well, the critics say she was bloodthirsty. They say it's unnecessary. I don't believe that to be the case. I think it's more reasonable, and we're not really specifically told in Scripture, but it is more reasonable to conclude that there were still pockets of resistance in the capital city, people who were looking forward to getting a second crack at the Jewish people. And Esther probably had this reported to her. She probably was aware of a certain kind of plot that was about to take place the second day. And so she comes to the king and she says, look, if you give us another chance, we'll be able to stamp this resistance out completely. 
Not only that, but the exposing of Haman's sons put on a stake and stuck high in the air would serve as an example and a deterrent to anyone who was really thinking about harming the Jews. In fact, this was very uh, common in ancient uh, uh, custom. Ancient custom was that criminals would be hung so that everyone could see them, and it was a warning, don't mess with us. This is what happens to our enemies. So I think that is, is certainly more reasonable than saying she was bloodthirsty. We just don't see that. There's no indication of that in, in the rest of this book. But once again... Even in this, God is protecting Israel from being caught off guard in another attack. And God's amazing protection of Israel continues even to this day. According to the prophecies of the Bible, the nation Israel must still face some very severe persecution. In fact, Jesus predicts that it will be the worst in human history. Yet, even through all of this suffering, God will not allow the nation to be totally destroyed. He will use the suffering to cause the survivors to turn to him and recognize that Jesus is the Messiah promised to the Jews. Then, as Paul said, all Israel will be saved. Pastor Steve has written a book on this ultimate salvation of the nation of Israel. The title of the book is God's Plan for Israel, and it explains why God is so committed to protecting and preserving this small nation of people. Steve also deals with the common objection that the church is now the chosen people of God and that God is not concerned with Israel as he was in the past. You can order Steve's book, God's Plan for Israel, when you give us a call at 7... Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.